We're continuing reading from Hebrews. So we're reading Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. So Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he said, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he said, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about his son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, you will roll them up like a robe, like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rachel, and good morning, everybody. It's a great pleasure to open God's word with you this morning. Uh, and you would have noticed, pretty obviously, that the author of the Hebrews has a thing about angels. Uh, in fact, just in our own little passage today, there are eight-time angels are mentioned and throughout the book, 13 times. No other book in the New Testament mentions angels quite as much as the author to the Hebrews does. I wonder why. Well, to kind of answer that question, what's the obsession with angels, we actually need to go back a little bit and understand what the book of Hebrews is about. Understanding the context helps us understand this fascination, at least at this point, with angels. Now, there's lots about the letter we can't tell. We don't know exactly who it's written to. We don't exactly know who it's written by. But what we can tell by just reading the letter is uh, it's most likely written to a bunch of Christians who live uh, in an urban context with a Jewish background. Now, we know it's an urban context because the idea and references to the idea of a city 
uh, is mentioned far more than any other New Testament book. He keeps talking about the city. Uh, it's very clear they live in a pluralistic society. There are, there are lots of different beliefs competing for people's attention. And it's obviously a result that uh, this meant for the Christians, these Hebrews that this person is writing to, that they're facing some form of mar uh, being marginalised and hostility for their Christian beliefs. It's hard to be a Christian. And so they're suffering and feeling the pressure to give up. That's the context of the letter to the Hebrews. And it's not a context that is actually that different to many of us, actually, in a progressive Western city with a polarity of views, different beliefs, and the push increasingly for Christians to be marginalised. And so the really big question that this book is looking at is, look, how, how do you be a Christian when life is hard? When there's pressure not to be? What is the answer when it is not popular anymore to be a follower of Jesus? And that, friends, as you can see, is an incredibly relevant question for us in 2023. So what's the answer? Well, here's the answer. This is not the, I don't get to come back to church anymore for the next few weeks. I've got the answer. No, it's because the author to the Hebrews will keep coming back to this answer again and again and build on it in different ways. He says, you persevere by fixing your eyes on Jesus. You persevere by fixing your eyes on Jesus because Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And we see that actually from the very opening verses of this letter where the author writes, in the past God has spoken through our ancestors, through the prophets and at many times in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the universe. And he goes on to explain how, how Jesus reflects the very glory of God, that he is God. And then all of a sudden, he seems to change gears in verse 4. He says, So Jesus became much more superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Out of nowhere comes this comparison to angels. And he goes on, he builds on that in the verses we look at. Now, we need to understand a bit about the culture of the day to understand why angels are such a big deal that the author wants to write to this church about them. So we're going to do a little bit of Angels 101. So Angels 101. It's, it's not directly about the text, but it helps us understand the text because uh, most of us probably haven't got the same obsession with angels as this church does. Uh, there will not be a quiz unless you want one at the end. Uh, I might even try interactive. We'll see how we go. You, you, look, you look awake and, and full of energy. Uh, the English word angel comes from the Greek word... Who's doing... Lonnie, do you know with this? this, this no, come on, brother. You should know. Uh, angelos, which means... Same kind of thing. It literally means to send. So an angel is someone literally who is sent... Uh, the Hebrew word means something really similar. It just means messenger. Uh, in both cases, it's, it's really a job description rather than a description of their essence or being. Uh, it's a bit like a postie or the guy who delivered. Like when we ordered some fingernail clippers and they arrived seven hours later from Amazon. Like, isn't, isn't our world amazing? <laughs> that was Amazon's angel. 
They delivered us our now, my fingers nails have never looked better. Because an angel from Amazon came and delivered. That's what angel means. Uh, but here they're not delivering uh, toenail clippers. Something far more important. Angel's main job is to deliver messages from God. That is God's word. In lots of different contexts. Both in warnings and celebrations, we see the angels bring God's word to people to tell them that something is happening. And angels often have a human likeness, but they also often freak people out. Have you noticed the very first thing every angel ever says in the New Testament and the Old Testament? It's a little phrase. Do not be afraid. It's on their business card, actually. (laughs) Angel of the Lord, do not be afraid. In other words, they're kind of like humans, but at the same time, there's something uncanny and unnerving about them. There's an awareness, there's something supernatural here. By the way, they're not the only angels in Scripture. We also have, you may have heard the term, archangels. What's an archangel? An archangel, arch is just a Greek word for boss or chief. So an archangel is the boss angel. In, in Scriptures, interestingly, only Michael is is actually called an archangel in Daniel 10. Uh, It's possible maybe that Gabriel is an archangel, but it's not overtly said. But different church traditions think that maybe Gabriel is as well. Uh, If you are really cluey in angels, you might remember something called cherubim and seraphim are mentioned particularly in, in a few places in Scripture as well. Now, unlike these kind of messages who deliver God's word, these cherubim and seraphim don't really seem to have uh, from the descriptions in Scripture, a human likeness at all. They're very, very unusual and weird. Uh, they're heavenly beings that, that, that surround the throne room of God and praise him unceasingly, saying, holy, holy, holy. Uh, the cherubim are these mysterious winged creatures. They have a description of four wings and four faces. It's hard to know how much is metaphor and how much is actual description. Uh, The cherubim are the ones who are guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden in Genesis. Uh, They're the ones who are depicted on the Ark of the Covenant, uh, whether you've seen the movie or actually read the text. Raiders of the Lost Ark, by the way, that's what I was referring to. Uh, Seraphim are very similar to cherubim. Uh, They are also associated with the presence of God. Uh, And unlike cherubim who seem to be under the throne of God, the seraphim seem to be much more directly in God's presence. Uh, You can see that in Psalm 99. Uh, These, it's once again really hard to get a grasp on what seraphim look like. Uh, Bear with me. They may resemble in some ways snakes. (laughs) I'll tell you why in a second. Uh, They're described sometimes of having four wings and sometimes as having six wings. The reason being is the word seraph Uh, can mean snake as a noun or to burn as a verb. Uh, And when Isaiah, for example, goes to the temple, it's who brings the coal, the burning coal to him, is a seraphim, burning. And these are the ones who also cry out, holy, holy, holy. So there's a lot going on we don't fully understand, but it paints us a picture of these uh, astonishing, created, but, but spiritual beings who seek to serve God. Now, these these angels are really, really popular uh, in Jewish uh, kind of cultural worldview at this time. They're a huge part of the culture, particularly from uh, about the 2nd century BC to the 1st century AD. And often when people retold Bible stories, they would add angels within the story. 
was part of the culture. They would, they would bring in or enact how God is acting. For example, it was a really, really common belief that on Mount Sinai, where God brings the law to Moses, that it was actually angels who delivered the law. So yes, God sent the law, but the angels were, in this case, the Amazon delivery drivers for the, for the law. In fact, Paul in Galatians 3.19 says, the law was given through angels. Through angels and entrusted to a mediator. So when you would think of the giving of the law of Moses, you would automatically think of angels. That's their role, to bring God's word and God's law to God's people. So so quite a big deal. And so the the writer of the Hebrews is saying, look, God has spoken to us by a son now. It's a possibility, a real possibility, that a Jewish reader would say, ah, this reminds me of an angel, someone who brings God's word. So maybe Jesus is another Michael or another Gabriel. Someone who brings God's word in this time and place. And so what the author does is uh, begin by showing us, look, Jesus is even better than the angels who bring God's word. And so what he does in verses 5 to verse 14 of chapter 1 is make this really deliberate comparison showing how much greater Jesus is than angels. Angels are good, by the way. They're they're amazing. But Jesus is better. And what he will do is quote all these Old Testament passages. And there's something very human about the author uh, of the Hebrews. is He always kind of sometimes forgets where they're from. It's written somewhere. It's the vibe, right? I can relate to that. (laughs) Uh, But what you'll notice is uh, if you have a, a... a Bible either on, on your phone or here, we actually have the cross-references. You can see where the actual Old Testament uh, passages are that, that the author is quoting. And what he does is, particularly when he's talking about Jesus, he quotes almost always from passages referring to the Messiah. Almost without fail about the Messiah. And he says, God's Son is the Messiah. The angels are neither of those two things. Uh, just for one really quick example, in verse 5, he quotes 2 Samuel 7, a really famous quote uh, where God speaks and says, this, this is a kind of a promise about a future king who will rule Israel and indeed the world. And what he's doing is creating this comparison. Angels are good, sorry, Christ Jesus is better. And he has this really obvious way of doing it, which is, who worships whom? In a relationship. And, and you can see this with your pets. Even when you have a pet dog. It's okay. You, you, oh, let's be proud. Uh, <laughs> anyone who have a cat? Okay. I'm going to offend half the people here. Let's go. It's, it's, that's okay. I'm okay with that. I've had dogs and cats. Uh, I've got a dog called Wellington. Uh, and uh, he loves going for a walk. He loves being fed. He, he tries to convince the rest of the family who haven't fed him that he hasn't been fed yet and tries to get multiple meals. He loves being patted. He loves following around the room. When, I'm pretty sure that when, when he sees me give him food and, and pat his tummy and take him for a walk, he says, John, you must be a god. You know, I follow you around. I worship you. When He's so excited to see me. But if you have a cat, it's a little different. The cat sees you giving it food, 
occasionally patting it if it, it, if it wants to, and it thinks, I must be a god. <laughs> and I will demonstrate my sovereignty by knocking random things off your shelf, <laughs> just to let you know who the boss is. In both cases, it's really clear. One is worshipping the other. Well, the cat might be mis mistaken. But who worships whom tells you who the hierarchy is. We see in verse 7, angels are supernatural beings with abilities and gifts, but they are not divine beings. Someone we should worship or pray to. In contrast to verse 4 and 5, it's clear that Jesus is the divine Son of God. And verse 6 actually commands that the angels worship Jesus. So if the angels are worshipping Jesus, it's really obvious Jesus is higher. And who do you worship? You can only worship God. Anything else is blasphemy, is sinful, idolatry. Furthermore, in verses 7 and 14, the angels are described as servants or, or ministering servants, which is a kind of way of saying serving servants. But in verses 8 to 11, Jesus, the Son of God, is described as an eternal king, king and servant. Who's the greater? We've seen the crown. We know how this works. Verse 8, but about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last Forever and ever, a scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. And he makes the same point in verses 13 and 14. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering servants sent to serve those who inherit salvation? So the author goes again and again to the Old Testament saying, look, angels are good. But Jesus is better. Angels are servants of God. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. Now, what do we do with this? Because uh, my guess is it's highly unlikely that you have been tempted to put angels above Jesus. I was chatting with Rachel, who did our reading. And she said, How are you going with your angels? Yeah, I probably should stop worshipping them. Uh, it's not what Rachel said, right? But she said, thank you, yes. <laughs> no preacher's license here, I'm sticking to the truth, that's right. Uh, what do we do with this? I mean, it's interesting, right, at one level. That's, I've learned a bit about angels. But what do we actually do with it? I think what the author is teaching us here is, anyone can turn from Jesus if they think something or someone is better. If they look to something or someone more than they look to Jesus. It doesn't have to be, by the way, an angel. It can also be a really good thing. It can be your job, or, or it can be money, or it can be financial success. It can be spirituality. It can be your degree. It can be your company. But these are really good things, by the way. But they can't sit at that top slot. The danger is we look to these things and we say, look, you, you can function as my saviour and Lord. If I have these things, then my life will be complete. If I have the perfect job, then my life will be complete. The perfect children, my life will be complete. The right amount of money in, in the bank, then my life will be complete. 
The author is saying, no, Jesus sits at number one. And there's a kind of a consequence from that too. If you downplay who Jesus is, then it's really obvious to downplay his message. If you're looking for wiggle room on what Jesus teaches and demands of our lives, look, one of the best ways to do it is to minimise the authority and person of Jesus. See, if you see Jesus just as some kind of enlightened soul, good teacher, good teacher, with some great ideas, who was unfortunately crucified, then we can believe and think and do as we please. We can pick and choose the teaching of Jesus. One good teacher among many. Yes, yes, Jesus' ideas, they were good for the time. But we now have a more modern understanding of, of the way the world works. And so we can, we can take some things and, and those things, well, they're not really, they're not really up, to, up to scratch anymore. But brothers and sisters, if Jesus is the son of the true and living God, then his word is final because he is Lord. Let me give you an example. A sheet of paper. Sorry, singers, I'm gonna, I'll put that back. I want to imagine that the distance between our earth and the sun is reduced to the thickness of a piece of paper. I prepared one here, right? That's manageable kind of thing of thinking. Uh, the distance between earth then to the next nearest star, because I do know the sun's a star, I'm not a complete idiot, uh, is 22 metres of paper away. That's the closest next star. Uh, the distance to the diameter of the Milky Way, how, how far is that sheet of paper going now? Well, it's going 500 kilometres away of sheets of paper. The nearest galaxy, this is where things get crazy, 10,000 kilometres of paper. That's how tall your paper stack is. That's to the next nearest galaxy. The best guess, because it is a guess, of our known universe would be a stack of paper five, uh, 50 million kilometres high, which, by the way, is a third of the way to the sun again, just as your paper stack, so it's probably going to catch fire at one end. <laughs> now, if there is a person, a God, who created all of this and holds it together by his word, is this the kind of person you invite into your life to be your personal assistant. Is this the kind of person who you say, look, look, maybe I could fit you in. If it's, you know, I've got a lot on at the moment. As long as you don't challenge me too much, I can probably give you a bit of time. Here's what God's word says at the beginning of chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore. Therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. The author said, look, if Christ really is superior to the angels, or in fact, to all things, there is only one response. We must pay careful attention to what we have heard, so we do not drift away. This is the kind of pointy bit of this whole section. Notice it says, uh, what have we heard? Well, in verse 3, it's the second half of verse 3. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. In other words, he's speaking about the gospel. 
The good news that the Lord Jesus has come and died and been raised to life again to save us and to forgive us and, and to give us the beauty of eternal life and a relationship with our Creator. But notice he uses the word must. It's not an option. It's not an optional extra. It's not like you become a Christian, you learn the gospel, and you think, wow, Jesus, this is amazing. I can, I can now kind of park that and set it aside. I've completed that part of my life. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. We must continue to pay close attention. And that little phrase there, uh, we must continue to pay close attention. Uh, in the original language, it's, it's a really uh, uh, focused word. In fact, it's two words. It kind of means to be, to be focused with a passion. Now, my youngest son, uh, a few years ago, was focused with a passion on Pokemon cards. Now, let me tell you what I now know about Pokemon cards as a result of his careful attention. Do you know how many different Pokemon species there are? This is kind of, we're weeding out the nerds here, right? Come on. You're amongst, it's amongst friends, it's safe. Anyone want to have a guess? Parents of small children, you might have a, a lucky guess here. 700. Close. As, as of yesterday, because I confirmed this with my son, 1,008. 1,008. And as my youngest was going to bed, we'd do prayers, and he'd say, Dad, can you test me on my Pokemon? <laughs> Not, can we talk about the scriptures, you know? That was a good prayer, let's talk about No, he'd say, what I want you to do is just read out the name. I'll tell you what it looks like, how many hit points, whether it's or whatever, right? 1,008! And you get it right every time. Is that where your heart is when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ? <clears throat> Tim Keller says we should be furiously obsessed with Jesus. Occupy our hearts and our minds. Why? Well, so we don't drift. You see, if, if your view of the supremacy of Christ diminishes... If your view of the supremacy of Christ is distracted by other things, if your view of the supremacy of Christ is darkened by your sin, the result is you drift away. You drift away. I'm reminded of when you swim between the flags. Very Australian thing, I'm not sure whether I can just do this. There are flags there. You've got to keep looking back, keeping focused on where the flags are, because if you don't, what happens? You end up with the surfers who abuse you, or you, well, worse, <laughs> you get carried out to sea in a rip or into the rocks. And there's two reasons that we need to remember this. We've got to get it in surfing or at the beach. Why it's so important with Jesus. And the first one is our world is not spiritually neutral. It's not a neutral world. There is a natural spiritual rip away from God. The natural inclination of the human heart is not unbiased in its natural state. It will wander from God. We're going to sing this, uh, this hymn slash song later on. And by God's good grace, um, I hadn't known that when I was preparing my sermon. Uh, Come thou fount of every blessing. Third verse says, O to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the Lord, uh, the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. See, if you're not looking to Jesus above all things, you will not stay where you are. You will drift. And the danger of drifting is you don't notice till it's too late. It's subtle and slow. See, imagine that you didn't brush your teeth one night. I know you would never do this, right? Uh, just, just for one night. Uh, would your teeth be okay the next morning? Right? Your breath might be a bit, you know, but there are not going to be cavities there, right? Well, I hope not. What about a week? Probably not cavities, though, you know. People are probably not going to be standing too close to you. What about a year? When did my teeth go bad? Can't believe there are holes and three of them have fallen out and two of them are black. Oh, what, what? Can you see how, drift, how drifting works? See, when we, when we are not furiously obsessed with Christ, when we don't listen, we don't hear silence. We hear the myriad of other views, of other narratives, of other slogans that tell us what life is like and how to get it. And we drift. Someone has said, affectional drift, that is heart drift, away from Christ happens through attentional drift when we no longer focus on Christ. Affectional drift happens through attentional drift. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you it's true. I've had many conversations with people who feel far from God. And I ask, how's your Bible reading? I haven't really opened my Bible in six months. Okay, what about your prayers? They're sporadic and maybe if I really need something. Well, how's your small group? I says, well, they're a bit weird. I've got to travel to get there and, you know, life's busy. Church, well, we've had things on. It's been busy. We haven't really got to church much in the last six months. And I'm like, why are you surprised that you feel like you've drifted from God? Didn't even notice. Step by step, moment by moment. And so in light of this this genuine spiritual reality, we are reminded in verse 2, there's a warning. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, remember this is about the law being given to Moses by angels, and every violation and disobedience received, uh, received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Now there's actually five kind of key warning passages in the, the letter to the Hebrews. This is the first one. And the author has a very simple logic. He's saying, if the law given through the angels was binding, in other words, if it's disastrous to neglect God's law, that is, if lying and murder and theft, all those things are detrimental, which they kind of are, right? How much more is it disastrous to neglect the gospel? The salvation brought by God's Messiah. The law is good, but Jesus is better. The law tells you, you need a saviour. Jesus tells you, I am your saviour. 
it's me. You are saved by grace. Stop, stop trying to do it yourself. Stop looking to other things. I have done it. That's why it's good news, not good advice. News is completed. It's done. And Christ says, stop chasing after things that are incomplete and unfinished and won't work. You need a saviour? I am your saviour. And so are you willing to be shaped and surrender to his will and to be shaped and surrender to his word? See, brothers and sisters, this is the call for us as Christians. Are you soft and compliant to the word and spirit of God? Are you furiously obsessed or are you furiously distracted? Are you drifting? Are you unwilling to acknowledge the supremacy of Christ in all things? Not just the bits which you already agree with Jesus. They're, they're the easy bits, right? What about the bits where, where your worldview crunches into the worldview revealed to us in Christ? What when he challenges you to think differently? To love people who you find difficult to love. See, brothers and sisters, we only get through this life with all its trouble and joys by listening to the Lord Jesus Christ, by being preoccupied by Jesus, by fixing the eyes of our hearts on Jesus. For there is no salvation so great as the one given to us in Jesus. So let's lift our eyes to him. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we know and you know that so often we become complacent. We are often distracted and take things for granted rather than take seriously your word and your salvation. Help us to see Jesus supreme above all else. Help us to hear Jesus, your all-powerful word. Help us to follow Jesus, our Saviour and our King. Amen.